The Tom Woods Show, episode 1134. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, Bob Murphy and I are doing it again. Contra Cruise 2018. You know you want to join us. You've seen how much fun it is. Everybody who's joined us absolutely raves about it. It is the vacation of a lifetime. Check it out at ContraCruise.com. Hey, everybody. Tom Woods here. I think most people who listen to this program have a pretty good sense of why it's a good idea for there to be free speech and free exchanges of ideas on college campuses. But not everyone sees the world quite that way, and a new book makes the argument very compellingly in a way that should appeal, I think, to most people who are reasonable. And I'm not trying to be a jerk about that, that anybody who disagrees with us is unreasonable. I don't know. Maybe I am. I don't, I don't know because the arguments I think in this book are very persuasive and so I thought I would invite the author to discuss them with us. The book is Speak Freely, Why Universities Must Defend Free Speech and the author is Keith Whittington who is the William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Politics at Princeton University. He is the author of many books on American constitutional law, theory and politics, federalism, judicial politics and the presidency. He's been a John M. Olin Foundation faculty fellow and an American Council of Learned Societies junior faculty fellow and a visiting scholar at the Social Philosophy and Policy Center, among many other credentials. Keith, welcome to the show. Thank you. All right. I have a bunch of devil's advocate arguments I want to use against you, but first I'd like to hear you lay out in brief, what is the general argument in favor of free speech on university campuses? Now, this is shooting fish in a barrel for my audience because they're already on board with you. But I want to hear what the argument is for people who might be skeptical. Sure. So the basic argument that I try to construct in the book is that um, free speech has a particular value on college campuses. So we might care about free speech in lots of other contexts because we care about our ability to hold government officials accountable, for example. Um, But in the particular context of a university, we ought to care about free speech um, uh, because it helps advance um, the core goal of a university, which is uh, to pursue the truth um, and then communicate what it is that we've learned. Um, And if we're going to be able to um, advance human knowledge, uh, we ultimately need to be able to engage in skeptical inquiry of received truths. Uh, We need to be able to uh, engage in uh, wide-ranging arguments. Uh, to test how strong uh, particular claims are. Um, And so the book tries to emphasize um, sort of a two-pronged approach to thinking about that. Uh, One emphasizes um, principles that really can be found in John Stuart Mill um, that emphasizes that importance of truth as uh, importance of free speech as part of a truth-seeking function, that that you can't um, uh, find the truth and you can't really be confident about what it is you know um, and make uh, your ideas as strong as possible unless you're willing to um, hear um, arguments from the other side. Um, and then the second prong um, really just emphasizes the dangers of uh, empowering censors. Um, and all through American uh, political and legal history, um, we've struggled with uh, whether or not we can trust, um, uh, whether it's government officials or campus administrators, uh, with the power to suppress speech that they dislike. Um, or find offensive or problematic in various ways. Um, and the less, the hard-won lesson of that experience 
um, is you just can't trust anyone uh, with that kind of power um, in the context of controversial um, speech um, because they will um, use it uh, far more aggressively uh, than we would prefer. All right. From my point of view, one of the main arguments is that if you prohibit speech that you find offensive, well, tomorrow it could be speech that you hold dear that winds up being prohibited, and it's hard to keep control of that. The argument that we need free speech in order to get at the truth, I think, runs into the left progressive objection that surely we have to concede there are some arguments we can't possibly learn from. I really don't need, for example, to relitigate uh, the history of national socialism in Germany, they would say. I, I don't need to hear what the pro argument to that was, and I don't feel intellectually deprived by not sitting there and listening to it. So what's the answer to that? Well, I think there's an element of truth in that, right? That we There are things that we um, have a pretty good handle on, and, and we don't necessarily want to spend lots of time uh, going back and, and trying to argue again about, is the earth really flat? Um, does the earth really revolve around the sun? Um, there are some things that we uh, want to move, move on from rather than have to continue having those arguments. Um, and, and so that's a, that's a reasonable concern in lots of contexts. At the same time, um, we do need to be willing to um, uh, be skeptical about even things that we think um, are probably true. Um, we need to be willing to hear um, and engage with um, evidence and arguments that might suggest there are problems with what we um, already know. Um, not merely because we might worry about, um, uh, is this going to completely overthrow um, all of our core beliefs, um, but also because it can be useful on trying to think about um, uh, how strong those arguments are on the margins. Um, and so we might think that we are um, uh, basically correct, for example, about the value of democracy um, as a political system or the value of um, equality um, as a political value. Um, and yet engaging in debate and thinking through those um, the arguments on, uh, for and against um, those things um, helps us better understand uh, why we ought to value them. It helps us understand um, how we ought to modify our arguments about them, uh, where there are weaknesses that we have to think more carefully about. Um, so we may think that we're, at the end of the day, we're not going to abandon democracy. We're not going to be persuaded um, that we prefer to live in a dictatorship. Um, but we may hear good arguments that help us think through more carefully um, what exactly do we value about democracy? What exactly does democracy require? Um, and, and it's useful to be, to be able and willing to hear that. How about this then? Are there any positions that you would say are really beyond debate? Like, for example, if, some, if somebody comes along and says uh, – I'll, I'll take a, an example that seems almost preposterous, yet I could probably imagine somebody saying it, that um, it's legitimate to target um, children in wartime. In fact, I, I can think of people who have said that. I, sure. I know people who have said that. <laughs> right. uh, do, do I actually have to sit through a debate with that person or can I say there is some – or uh, uh, how about somebody who just flat out denies an obvious – not a controversial but an obvious conclusion of science, just an obvious one. I mean try to think of one that absolutely everybody in his right mind accepts. Not, not – sometimes we get contested – points of view where we're told everybody believes it, but not everybody does, but something that everybody believes. Like, for example, that air exists. Right. Do I really have, I mean, can't I just say, you know, I just don't see how this enriches campus life. There, there have to be, surely there are some kind of criteria that we all would agree on. 
is the point simply that we're not going to exclude because we don't want to hear dangerous or unorthodox political views? Is that what we're saying? Well, so I think there are um, uh, sort of several several ways of trying to think this through. Uh, and so I think as a sort of blanket principle, it's probably not the case that, that we want to say um, there are some uh, kinds of claims that are just totally beyond the pale and we're unwilling to um, engage them at all. Um, there, are, there may well be, though, lots of claims, and there are, uh, lots of claims that we think are um, extremely foolish, um, already well settled, um, not worth spending our time on. Um, and, and that may be a, a different issue. So part of what um, colleges um, do is try to uh, winnow through the quality of ideas uh, in order to identify the good ones um, and exclude the bad ones. Um, and so in particular, that's what happens in scholarship and teaching. Um, the part of why you hire expert faculty is because you uh, think that they um, have adhered to professional standards and are capable of distinguishing between um, bad arguments within their areas of expertise and bad information within their area of expertise and good information. And you hope the classroom and the scholarship is filled with the good information um, and largely excludes the bad. Um, yeah, but campus also has space for um, uh, more general public debate that's not guided by those same uh, scholarly norms. And there you might well hear on a college campus um, arguments that we think are, are fairly weak, um, have been rejected in scholarly literature, um, uh, for example. Um, and nonetheless, students uh, may want to hear, uh, may want to be able to think through more carefully. Um, and and want to see what those positions look like. Um, but even then, we probably want to make choices about um, uh, hearing better and worse versions of those arguments. So you want, if you're going to bring somebody to campus to speak, you want to bring somebody that, that is able to offer um, serious ideas um, that are worth your time to engage with, um, rather than people that are making uh, trivial arguments. It's also true you want to distinguish between people who are making arguments in good faith and people who are making arguments in bad faith. And Unfortunately, there certainly are people running around that um, are advancing um, arguments that it's not even clear they believe in, and they're not willing to engage in a, a serious um, discussion about those. Um, instead, they're trying to be provocative or controversial um, or simply posturing, um, and it's probably not really worth our time and effort on a college campus to try to engage with those people. Well, all right, let's think about the example of somebody who's not giving an address on campus, but who's simply using language that I hate to use the word offensive because I think everybody's offended at everything, but if, but language that really only an obnoxious jerk would want to use. Sure. Uh, surely we can believe in free speech while also telling that guy to stop being a knucklehead. I think it's perfectly reasonable to tell that person to stop being a knucklehead, right? I mean, that, that part of what we want to be um, uh, doing on college campuses, and I hope in civil society more generally, is trying to encourage people um, to be more civil with one another, to be able to engage each other in a productive way uh, rather than in unproductive ways, and calling each other names and, and um, uh, tr trying to be offensive, or even in some cases um, um, being offensive uh, without necessarily trying to, but but just having that effect, um, are all ultimately sort of unproductive of what we ultimately want to do, which is to be able to talk to one another, uh, reason through um, arguments and ideas, and and come to um, uh, conclusions about um, what we think is is true. 
Um, and, and so we need to learn how to deal with people who are um, very different than us, who hold very different ideas than us. Um, and, and sometimes that means um, uh, running into people that are going to say things that are pretty disagreeable and sometimes people who are going to be, in fact, um, uh, pretty offensive. Um, but it's perfectly reasonable, I think, to say, um, uh, to tell people when they're being offensive and to, and to try to find ways of being less offensive so we can have more productive conversations. All right, let me introduce an expressly political angle to this and get your thoughts on it. It's true that the right wing can be very, very tough with you if they, do, if they disagree with you. They can call you names. They can call you a socialist or a communist. Some people just embrace those terms and there's no problem. But they can be very t- – they can say terrible things about President Obama. They're – all that. They, they can do all those things. Sure. But what I find is that there's something qualitatively different about what's coming out of the left because the right will say – you know, you, you progressives are wrong about a lot of things because you don't understand economics or you don't get this or you haven't learned the lessons of history or whatever it is. But what I hear coming from the left is it's not just that you're wrong. You don't even have the right to exist because you're just a white supremacist. You don't have arguments that we need to address. You're a white supremacist. And that term is now thrown around at almost everyone. It's not just people who actually favor legal distinctions between the races, which would consist of almost nobody these days, but it's just applied across the board to destroy people's careers and reputations and make it seem as if, of course, we don't need to debate these people. Would you actually debate a Klansman in the 1960s? I think that is a relevant part of this discussion, that there is a side of things that I think is simply not playing fair. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth in that. I think the left would probably say that there are elements of the right that do similar things. But I I think it is certainly true that um, uh, a common move that we see not only in campus debates, but certainly in debates more generally in our society, um, are efforts to try to um, uh, refuse to engage people on the merits of their arguments, but instead just to um, push them um, uh, out of the discussion itself and, and to push them to the margins um, and to denounce them as somebody that you don't even uh, need to talk to. Um, and you worry that that, um, uh, that, that sort of is, is winds up narrowing our range of discussion and, and narrowing what we're willing to regard as um, uh, a reasonable set of views that ought to be um, ought to be discussed it, uh, on a university campus. Um, that can be counterproductive if it means that there's a um, whole set of uh, potentially important um, arguments and ideas that you're not um, looking at very carefully, um, and that um, hampers our ability to um, improve our understanding of the world. Um, but in politics, it can also be very damaging if the result is. Uh, we're going to take, say, there are wide swaths of the American public um, or the political sphere, for example, um, and we're just going to refuse to engage them um, and act as if uh, they don't exist um, or beyond the pale. Um, and ultimately, that's a hard way of running a democracy. You know, I noticed that you have a Ph.D. from Yale, so surely you're more than familiar with the Yale Political Union and I can say that last year when I participated in one of their debates, I found it to be one of the most enriching episodes in my entire academic life, including my undergraduate years. 
at Yale's uh, primary rival. It, it was tremendous. We debated a controversial topic without acrimony, with a whole lot of fun, with a lot of very bright people who were willing to entertain outside-the-box ideas, the very sort of thing you would kind of think should be happening all over the country and yet isn't. So it, it's conceivable. It can happen. There's a, built, there's a culture of it at Yale that, is still, that still persists in the form of the Yale Political Union. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there there are debating societies at um, uh, a number of universities. Uh, Yale Political Union is quite notable in that regard. Here at Princeton's campus, uh, we have the Wig Clio Society that is um, serves a similar function, um, and they're extraordinarily useful. In part because they do um, not only do they provide a forum for um, debates, and so people can regularly engage with one another, and that's very useful to have on a college campus. Um, but they also socialize students into um, being able to have um, uh, important um, arguments um, and discussions um, and to be able to engage in those um, in a fairly serious way, in a fairly civil way. Um, and, and that's very encouraging. And that's, that's what you ultimately want to um, help educate um, college students to do. And, and I think those kinds of student societies are, are extraordinarily important in modeling that behavior and encouraging students to um, engage in that behavior. And I've had um, very good experiences in them um, as well. And um, you sort of hope that um, uh, uh, many other organizations on campus uh, can uh, emulate um, those models. Let's talk a bit about some terms that we hear thrown around quite a bit with regard to um, discourse on college campuses, and that's safe spaces and trigger warnings. And you try, I mean, I would not describe your book as a polemic. I mean, you try to be as understanding as you can to all sides of this discussion. And so you even try to be as sympathetic as you can to these terms, even while ultimately rejecting where they've wound up. So I'd like you to say a word about those, please. Yeah, so um, so I was pretty skeptical of both these um, concepts when I first heard them. Um, and I think there's lots of reasons to be skeptical um, of them. But um, as with most things, I, I tend to find that once you dig into them and explore them, that they're often more complicated than uh, one imagines. And often there's a um, kernel of something um, good and useful there. Um, and I think that's true of both the safe space concept and the trigger warning um, concept. Um, I think both are um, uh, dramatically overused and, and really abused in, in current debates. Um, and, and so they... Um, are problematic in lots of ways, but there is something there. So in the context of um, uh, trigger warnings, um, there is a valuable core, I think, in, in recognizing that there are some students um, who are going to attend uh, modern universities that are highly inclusive and try to make themselves available to a very wide range of students who come to campus um, with uh, uh, serious mental and emotional um, difficulties and um, can, in fact, encounter things um, that um, are um, uh, uh, harmful to their health. Um, and you want to try to be accommodating um, to those students and, and make uh, it possible for those students to take advantage of a college education. Um, and fear warnings, at least in theory, um, is, is one way of potentially um, doing that. I think in practice, the, the, it's, it's, almost wholly detached from um, 
that potentially useful desire to be accommodating to those with genuine mental health issues um, instead is used as a um, weapon to uh, try to uh, remove uh, things from campus that some might see as offensive um, or are politically controversial. And the consequence of that really is to uh, shrink the scope of what you can effectively teach, um, what you can effectively research, and what you can effectively um, discuss on a college campus. And, and we ought to resist that. Uh, similarly, with safe spaces, I think there is a, uh, a valuable uh, kernel there, um, which is to say um, that we do want to have um, both uh, metaphorical, but also even literal space on campus Um for people to congregate with others with whom they largely agree. Um, it's useful to um, have um, uh, spaces on campus where we can socialize freely, uh, we can gather together with people um, uh, who, uh, in fellowship who, with whom we um, share um, lots of ideas and beliefs and commitments. Um, but it's also crucially important that we recognize that that can't be the entire campus. Um, that the college campus as a whole um, has to be dedicated um, to um, respecting disagreements um, and diversity. Um, and so there's going to be, so if you try to make the campus as a whole a safe space, uh, you're going to be um, excluding most of what we do on a college campus, which is to debate disagreeable ideas and to disagree among, among ourselves. Um, but, there, but it's reasonable to say that, that we can carve out um, limited spaces on campus um, or, or limited kinds of activities on campus um, where people who largely agree can get together and, sh and share things um, together um, in a context in which they um, um, don't feel, um, I hate to use the word threatened, but that's of course the common uh, phrase in this, in this context, that they don't feel threatened by those that are um, uh, disagreeing with them or are extremely different with them in sort of fundamental ways. How does hate speech fit into this debate? So, of course, hate speech is this sort of a, a catch-all for um, uh, lots of different kinds of claims and is used all the time now to um, shut down debate on campuses. Um, part of the problem with it is that it's uh, um, very amorphous as to what the concept even is supposed to refer to. Um, different people have different ideas about what they're talking about when they say hate speech. Um, but often it's just used in lots of different ways. So in a very narrow sense, we might think of hate speech as, um, uh, as really primarily being applied to sort of personal harassment um, or threats um, to individuals. Um, and in those contexts, I think, you know, colleges as well as American society in general um, ought to be um, vigilant in trying to um, stop uh, harassing behavior and threatening behavior between individuals. Um, but it's also used much more um, broadly to just refer to um, the expression of some ideas, uh, for example, that are regarded as um, uh, often racist, but, but, but often it's used in a much broader context even than in the context of race that, um, to, to uh, address ideas that are seen as uh, potentially uh, demeaning and, or harmful or damaging to the interest of um, a variety, wide variety of um, identities, including race, but also including sexual orientation, including uh, gender um, and all kinds of things. Um, and, and at that expansive level, of course, it has the effect of just shutting down um, lots of um, 
discussion about um, ideas that are ultimately quite important um, uh, that uh, need to be um, held on a college on a college campus. This book, judging from your scholarly background, represents something of a departure for you because you normally write about issues pertaining to American constitutionalism, and here you are writing a book about free speech on college campuses. Was there some kind of a maybe a straw that broke the camel's back for you that made you say, I've got to write this book, or has anything happened to you personally? What was the, what was the origin of the book? So, of course, I, I come from sort of a, a classical liberal or conservative um, uh, perspective um, on things in, in general, um, and and you know, I made my career in academia, and and so I've certainly had my share of uh, moments where uh, I've been called names or marginalized in various ways um, on college campuses, and you sort of get used to that as part of the background noise in some ways of being on the right on on a college campus. Um, but I do find that over um, you know, really the recent years, so not just in the last year or two even, but over the last few years, um, there does seem to be sort of a growing intolerance um, of disagreement um, on college campuses, um, a, a, a shrinking of an appreciation of um, why we ought to even care um, about free speech um, on, on a college campus. Um, and so, of course, there have been sort of particular episodes that highlight that in, in particularly visible ways, although I started writing the book a little bit before, for example, Charles Murray got shouted down at Millbury College and before the riots at Berkeley um, surrounding uh, the, the Milo visit. Um, but but there's sort of a steady drumbeat on college campuses of um, uh, instances in which it's clear that both students and faculty and also college administrators um, don't always appreciate um, what it is that universities are even for um, and don't appreciate why it is you ought to um, uh, respect disagreement and be willing to engage with those with whom you disagree. So there are a lot of things I was sort of taking for granted about the way um, universities would work. And it sort of became evident to me that I should stop taking those things for granted and really need to try to uh, make the case um, for um, students, but also for lots of others um, about um, why we ought to value universities, what it is we ought to value about universities, and um, why part of what we ought to value is the possibility of disagreement and debate um, on university campuses. The book is Speak Freely, Why Universities Must Defend Free Speech by Professor Keith Whittington. Keith, I appreciate your time today and best of luck with this important book. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And that will do it for today. Now, tomorrow we're going to be talking about the relationship between militarism abroad and its domestic consequences at home. Very interesting topic featuring Chris Coyne from George Mason University, so don't miss that one. See, there'd be no chance you'd miss one if you subscribed on iTunes. You just go to tomwoods.com slash iTunes, and then you get all the episodes automatically. It's awesome. Right? Awesome. Especially, by the way, this week we did a debate episode, episode 1131, on the Trump tariffs, pro and con. And I thought that was tremendous. A lot of great information came out. Even though the the debate was contentious, it still remained gentlemanly and generated a lot of light. And I think if you missed that episode, you really missed out on something special. So go back and listen to episode 1131. That really is what Ultimately, this show is all about at its best. 
And why would you want to miss one of these precious gems? So subscribe over at TomWoods.com slash iTunes, and I'll see you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.